dream big never stop dreaming because you can do whatever that you want as long as you believe in your dreams hello and welcome to the dare to dream productions podcast today we have a very special guest but before that we also have a very special co-host jade so she's also a filmmaker can you give us a little intro about what kind of films you make and who you are hi um I used to be really, really into horror films. When I was in high school, I did two film festivals for my school with two different horror films. But um, as I've graduated, I've gotten really into experimental and I guess independent filmmaking. I still love um, disturbing movies, I guess. And uh, the guest that we have on the show today is one of my biggest inspirations. Please welcome Anna Biller the writer and director of The Love Witch. She focuses on feminist themes and 60s technicolor stand out to audiences worldwide. She's played at numerous festivals and in 2019, she joined the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, great to be here. Nice to meet you. So what was your inspiration behind The Love Witch? I wanted to talk about my life as a woman um, and I wanted to talk specifically about heartbreak and um, I wanted to use metaphors and symbols, the symbol of the witch, I think that misunderstood women have always been designated as witches. Most women feel different, they feel like they're not the norm, like a man is the norm and a woman is weird and you feel weird and you feel like a witch and you feel like there's something wrong with you. And it isn't until maybe you get a little older and you start talking to other women out of like a high school or immature type of setting where you realize that actually I'm not weird, I'm just a woman. And you know how it's like you're made to feel like 51% of the population is made to feel like there's something bizarre about you. And um, that it's such a universal feeling of being sort of being So I wanted to talk about women being persecuted as witches just for being women, and also about what it is to be a witch on the inside as kind of a feeling of crazy, but also an affirmative feeling of feeling great about being different and being a woman. And also I want to talk about heartbreak because I had an experience of heartbreak and I wanted to put that emotionally on the screen. I wanted to see if I could do that. Um, there's been a lot of talk about how this film in particular was sabotaged by male crew members. Um, can you talk about that a little bit and about your on-site experience? Well, you know, I don't like to be too negative. I was actually kind of sorry I wrote those tweets because I felt like the people that were really great on the crew, um, felt like they didn't know how to differentiate themselves. It was almost like, as if I was talking about the whole crew, even though I was, I was careful to say it was only some people on the crew. So I feel like I, I want to first say that I had some really great crew members and that they were amazing and that I don't want to talk about them negatively. But I do feel that um, being a female director, not just with this film, but with all of my films has been a struggle because I think like you get this into this dynamic with men sometimes where they're like, they really can't deal with having a female in charge. And, and you can tell it's an emotional, very personal, deep issue with them. So you don't want to like brush against it too hard. But on the other hand, you have stuff that needs to get done. So one kind of experience that I'll have is kind of like telling someone to do something. 
and I'm, I have living in like dread and terror that they might do it wrong. And not because it's so, so inconvenient for me that they do it wrong, but that I can't tell a man he's done something wrong. Because what happens if you tell a man that he's wrong, or he did, did something wrong, or he got some fact wrong or something, he will just like go berserk. I mean, and not even necessarily on the outside, but he might just go berserk on the inside. If you get even one crew member feeling like that, the whole set can turn against you because you told him he was wrong. And the thing is, is like, how do you run a set without being able to tell someone to redo something that actually is a really important thing that needs to be redone? You know, like that really is important. Like it's a crucial, crucial thing that somebody has to know. So you just like hope and pray and beg that the men on the set don't do anything wrong. Because <laughs> half the time I don't tell them. I'll just like clean up the mess and I won't tell anybody. I'll just do it. And I'll, I'll, I'll even absorb like huge costs. Like one guy on my film, Diva, like, damaged a truck like he ran it into a tree and he, and he didn't tell me and i was in terror of like telling him and i had to pay thousands of dollars in insurance to fix the truck i didn't tell him because i thought if i tell him and then he's and then the male crew like gets around that i criticized criticized him then maybe the whole crew will turn against me it's like it's, it's better to pay like you know twenty five hundred dollar deductible and have the whole crew, crew turn against me. So it's kind of like this male-female dynamic that you get kind of weird. You know what I mean? It's like, I had on my, on my movie Viva, I have a couple of carpenters. Oh no, it's actually in that short film, it was even before that, where one of the carpenters was fine taking instructions, the other one could just not take instructions from me. So like he'd put a wall in the wrong place or he'd do this, and I, I, it's almost like I had to tell the other guy, I couldn't tell him. And the other guy could tell him. You know, so you get this thing where you know, that is misogyny, right? I mean, it's like, or it's, it's sexism, and it's very distressing, because you're trying to run a set, um, but literally, you can make one comment at the, on the first week, and then that's it for what whatever portion of the crew is geared that way to feel that way about women, which is usually at least half. Do you consider your films feminist? Well, no. No, I don't. I don't think films are, I mean, I think that very few films are feminist. I mean, I think that Politics is something that doesn't often enter into entertainment films. I mean, well, here's what I'll say. What I'll say is that my films are feminine on purpose. They're, they're from a feminine point of view and um, a female point of view on purpose. And I think that it, it's not just being a woman. It's, you don't get a female point of view just from being a woman. You get a female point of view by consciously trying to be very specific and honest with yourself about how your thinking might be different than that of men and how your experiences might have been different from that of men. And then trying to like create characters and stories and situations around that. But like you have to be very conscious of doing it because most people just copy other people's writing. Most people just copy everything. Most of the movies and culture are made by men and most people copy other people's work. And most people, including men, aren't really that self-reflective and introspective in their writing. They're writing, you know, genre pieces. They're writing. You know, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying it's a different way of working. So, I have a consciously female way of writing on purpose. In or you know, and um, is that feminist? That's up for interpretation. But it is feminine. It is. It is consciously it, it making us uh, trying to differentiate itself from a masculine way of thinking. So. so we have one question from Amelie from Chicago, and she asks, do you have any advice for first-time directors? 
make sure that when you're making something, you're making something that you really want to make, that you really like, and that you're willing to live with for many, many years. So that make sure that you really prepare a lot. Like, think about what you're doing and why you're doing it and who it's for. And try to make it all mainly for yourself, but also try to find a, a sort of a universal, like a feeling of how other people might relate. Think about who your audience is. And if you love what you're doing, then um, other people are going to love it too. Um, in your self-made film, Viva, you did play a role in it. What impacted your decision to not also play a role in The Love Witch? Well, first of all, um, to be honest, that was a really terrible, terribly difficult thing to do, to be in front of and behind the camera. And um, I did it on the short films, and it wasn't that hard, because they were just like a weekend here and there. But then doing it on a feature was terrible. And part of it was that I couldn't really move the camera, because I couldn't see you know, we didn't even have playback. So I didn't know, you know, I didn't want to like have this huge surprise of what it was going to look like when I got the footage back because I've had DPs move the camera in ways that, that, that were really offensive to me actually in the past. So the thing is, I tend to like not let the DP move the camera. I had no camera movement and that, that was kind of obnoxious. So I had some dolly shots when I wasn't in the shot. Um, but it was really uh, hard and it was also really hard to get go back and forth between the mode of directing and acting. I had to really blank myself out when I was acting, but I didn't have like the internal space to prepare for the character. So I felt like it really hurt the performance. So I felt the performance would have been so much better if somebody had just been dedicated just performing. And also I really, it was terrible being in the makeup chair while I should have been directing. That was really bad. So it's like I'd be in a different room or I'd be setting up lights. And then I'd come out and it would all be wrong. Like the camera would be in the wrong place and the setup would be wrong. And they wouldn't have followed my storyboard and they'd have to relight it. And it would, it was terrible when that happened because it'd be like, I need to be out there by the camera at all times. I can't just be like back in the makeup room. And then the makeup artist refused to do my makeup on the set, like right, you know? So it's like, um, he said, no, because you're moving your face too much. You're moving your mouth, you're talking, you're looking everywhere and I can't you know, have you be still. So. Um, but you know, that's not the only reason. The other reason is that I decided I didn't enjoy performing that much after that because uh, I felt very objectified. I think I objectified myself as an experiment and then I decided I didn't like it. I didn't like having the camera on me. It does sound like a lot of multitasking and it seems difficult, of course. Yeah, yeah. And I, I want this kind of image of, of female beauty and also I don't think I fulfill it. You know, he says it's like, so that was the other thing, you know, I, I think like when I was doing it as an experiment or as an art film, it was more about the discrepancy between my own image and what I was aspiring to be. And then I didn't want that discrepancy anymore. I wanted to just pick a, like a really gorgeous woman where it didn't, there weren't there any issues like with her, her looks, you know. So we're very excited to see your next films. Can you talk a little bit about your new film, Bluebeard? Yeah, I'm so excited about Bluebeard. I had a lot of problems getting it, uh, you know, getting it off the ground. I've uh, been working really hard on it. Um, it's just, you know, it's, it's a new territory for me, um, doing a film like through a studio or through regular financing channels, and I have no experience in it. Even though I have a really good agent, I've had, had problems navigating that world. I think if we were just to finally 
like I'd had it set up several places and it fell through. And then finally I had it set up at a new place where it really seemed like it was just about to go. And then the pandemic hit. So, um, you know, now nobody can film and all those independent companies are going under and probably won't, I won't be, you know, they'll be gone by the time this ends. So it's really sad, you know. But the movie itself, um, I'm so excited by because, you know, I think The Love Witch was kind of um, visually inspired by these 60s pulp novels with witches on the covers, like Sexy Witches. And then Viva was visually inspired by um, ads and cartoons from Playboy magazine. And this one is inspired by those vintage romance pulp novels, novels with uh, women running from castles with their hair blowing and, you know, wearing an incredible nightgown or something or a beautiful dress. Very gothic. It's just like hyper, hyper gothic. And I was mainly inspired by these old Hollywood movies um, like Gaslight and Suspicion and Rebecca and all these movies where there's like a scary husband and you don't know if he's trying to kill you or if he's, or if he's the love of your life. And um, those are some of my favorite movies. And so I wanted to emulate that. Um, through the Bluebeard fairy tale. Because the Bluebeard fairy tale is the archetypal fairy tale about your husband wants to kill you. Does he want to kill you? You know, and so those classic movies about that theme are, are called Bluebeard movies. You know, so this, this, so the, the whole gothic romance concept, you know, Rebecca, the movie Rebecca plus the gothic, they all come from Bluebeard. They're all Bluebeard. They're all Bluebeard stories. Every gothic romance is a Bluebeard story. It's about a dangerous man, you know, weathering heights in a castle, and you're, you find him very hot and sexy, but you're, you're afraid of him, you know, and it's a metaphor for just any type of dating, actually, or relationship or marriage, where you never know whether the man is safe or not, you know, and you could get very far and deep into being sucked into falling madly in love or even marrying someone and having their babies before you realize they're like a psycho killer or, you know, and I feel like that that, you know, you think about horror and you think about, uh, it would say like drawing your worst fears. Well, I think for many women, that is their worst fear to fall madly in love with, you know, with a psycho, you know, and then give him your, your love and your feelings and your life and your time and your, and get so involved that you can't get out, you know. I mean, for straight women, I guess. Um, so, um, I actually have two questions. Um, what route do you plan to go with Blackbeard or Bluebeard once it's done being filmed? Like, do you plan on putting it in festivals? And also, how is um, how did the pandemic affect like your decision on this film at all? Well, um, definitely, um, I, I I think it should go straight to con. Definitely. I mean, that's, that's my dream. Like, I, I'm just going to skip past, you know, Sundance this time, even though I, I've actually never gotten into Sundance, but I think I'll just try to even skip. I just want to do, like, uh, you know, it's such a European type of film. It's such a British film. So I would definitely like to do festivals and then hope for, like, some kind of, at least, um, some kind of theatrical release. Because it's kind of a, I think it's, it says a potential to be quite, like kind of a cult film in a way because so many women are interested in these themes and I'm planning to make a very, very beautiful technicolor. Um, well, the, and the pandemic, with the pandemic, the issue with that is that I can't shoot or, or, or even finance or even cast right now. I can't do anything right now. So um, 
how that's changed things is like in the meantime I've written another script and so um, I might then write another script I and mean, depending on how long this goes on and uh, these scripts will be are cheaper than Bluebeard and they might be easier to finance and so Bluebeard may not be the next one I do depending on you know everybody has less money now to, to invest in movies so that's one reason I'm writing some cheaper things but I'm really hoping I can still make Bluebeard next but it might not be the next one you did tweet something about like screaming how naked screaming bloody woman in horror films is not feminist horror and I definitely agree with that but would you ever make a slasher film where this wasn't the case and how would you change these stereotypes in the horror genre of woman? Well, that's one thing I was kind of interested in doing with Bluebeard and also with this other horror film I just wrote is this idea is that you can have a horror film and you can have women getting killed and you can have it be a slasher, but it's not from the killer's point of view. It's, it's back like the old fashioned movies were never from the killer's point of view. It wasn't until, you know, it's 1960 that you had ever had a movie from the killer's point of view. Like, uh, Psycho Partially and Peeping Tom both came out in 1960. And they were the first movies that ever did that. And ever since then, um, most of the slasher movies are from the killer's point of view. So what I'm trying to do with Bluebeard and with this other medieval horror movie I just wrote and with whatever other slasher movies I may write is I want to take it back to the female point of view. You're in the victim's point of view. And, and if you're in the female point of view, then, um, you know, the 10 discarded female bodies that happened before the final girl survives, that you, would, you couldn't have that because each one would be too sad. Each, you can't, because you can't just like throw away female bodies like that. It doesn't matter if there's a final girl at the end. If you're, if you're doing it from a female point of view, you can't just discard that many women. Maybe one or two women could die, but they, it would have to be tragic, really tragic. You know, like they killed a lot of women in horror films as well. But it was tragic. It was tragic. It was like, you know, you want to have, you, you know, in filmmaking, you want to create a feeling. I feel like filmmakers are always trying to create the most extreme emotions in the audience by having the killing be more extreme, the violence more extreme, the horror more extreme. Well, if you want to elicit more emotions from an audience, just create a character that people care about. That will elicit strong feelings. Like if you feel like you knew that person and that person dies, that's going to give you a lot more feeling than if just the gore is a little bit more fancy, you know? <laughs> this idea of even just making effective horror movie. And like one reason Psycho is still more famous than almost any slasher that came, or actually is more famous than any other slasher, is because of how expertly the characters are drawn. It's not, a, it wasn't about the gore. I mean, it's in black and white. You can't even see the gore that much. It's, it's not about the thrill of the shower scene. It isn't about the sexualized violence. Like everybody who tries to co copy Psycho gets it wrong. I mean, not everybody, but the majority of people who try to copy Psycho, they're copying the, the things in Psycho that aren't the things that make it great. You know, the things that make Psycho great are what Hitchcock always did, even in the 30s, even in the 20s, which is create great characters and um, create empathy and pathos and humor and good writing, good editing, you know. That's, I think, what makes an effective movie. Is he one of your inspirations, Hitchcock? And yeah, do you and have... more and more so. Actually, more and more so the more I study him. You know, I think, like, if you really study him, He's kind of incredible because he was doing like, you know, 
some of his movies, even in the early 30s, he was doing stuff about really sophisticated relationships between men and women, like that were very, you know, between married couples and, and like his understanding of both male and female psychology surrounding relationships and love was very deep. And uh, I think a lot of the writers in the early, you know, the 30s and 40s movies were, were women. But a lot of the male writers and directors learned how to be extremely empathetic to women when they were writing as well, because women were really driving box office. And so there was really a lot of need to create really great um, female characters. And I think once the sort of um, censorship codes exploded and the new Hollywood aesthetic kicked in, then everything's been about men ever since. I mean, this has been 50 years now, but all, most of the movies have been about men. And so I, not that I'd like to go back in time, but like we can go forward in the future with having great female characters. We read um, online that both of your parents were in uh, design and art fields. And um, since you do like design all of your sets, do they have a lot of inspiration behind that? Do you think you would still be doing that if they weren't in those fields? Probably not. I think, I think like, um, one thing about um, growing up with artists, like you tend to like learn about life through your parents, like what is possible. So I just saw them making stuff all the time. Like my mom made these beautiful dresses, like incredible, she always was the best dress and she always had the most incredible clothes. And all of her friends were all wearing her clothes that she designed. So everyone was wearing her clothes. And it's like, she just made them. <laughs> And like, we didn't have any money. I mean, it was poor, but she had the best clothes. So it's like, hmm, you know, if you want to have the best clothes, you can just make them. And then my dad, too, it's like, he just made everything, you know? Like, he made us, like, swing sets and bunk beds, and he made, he just made everything. Like, he just made, like, we never bought anything. Like, we didn't ever have a bed that we bought. It was just, like, a slab of foam rubber on a board with cinder blocks. It was just, everything was sort of weird. It was like, weird you know like um it wasn't ever about money it was always just about making stuff so i just grew up with that mentality like if you want something you have to make it and i guess that was really ingrained in me and then um after i went to ucla i went into the art department there i i went to new york and i worked in photo studios just i happened to get this job as a photo assistant and i was assistant to the stylist and i helped her create sets for the um they were shooting wallpaper catalogs, so they had to create rooms, like just like a little corner of a room. And it was super hokey because it would be this wallpaper and it would match the fab fabric of the couch, would match the wallpaper on the set. And it was amazing to me because it reminded me of those like old 50s, like Technicolor movies where everything would match. And so when they would be done with the shoot, first of all, I learned how easy it is to like fake wallpaper a couple of pieces of wood and then fake upholster a couch and fake do this and fake do that and how easy it was so I learned that. But also then I would lug the rolls, the extra rolls of wallpaper and bolts of fabric home on the subway and I would create these little sets in my um, basement apartment and I started um, making Super 8 movies and shooting and then I would like make like this Victorian dress for some girl in front of the wall and that's how I started making movies. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Yeah. 
And I, yeah, I would just drag like furniture from the from the street. You know, they would leave things on the street, and I'd get a friend, and then we'd drag it into my. You know, so I'd have yeah. And it was like a railroad apartment. It was like seven feet wide. I'm not even sure how. It was like forty feet long. It was super long, so I could get the camera back. Very weird. I don't know. How old were you when you started making films? Well, actually, I kind of I started making videos before that. So, like when I was at UCLA in the art department, I was making videos, and that was so I was about twenty, nineteen or twenty. Yeah. We have another question from Amelie from Chicago. How many rewrites did you do for the Love Witch? I got it so many that I don't even. I can't even count them, but I like the rewrites wouldn't necessarily be full rewrites. They would be like I would change some of the dialogue in one scene, and then I save it as a new draft, and I change, tweak a little bit more. Like so, full drafts. I I didn't. I never really like completely changed it. It just I just kept tweaking it. I tweaked it for for years. I just kept. <laughs> so by the time I was done with it, it was quite different than when it started. But I I didn't actually ever do a full rewrite. I just kept sort of shifting yeah it was i was teaching myself how to write i just i didn't really know how to write i guess um because viva was kind of a weird script it wasn't like i wanted to write a conventional script and for some reason it was very hard for me to do that while also keeping my themes in the print like i wanted and keeping the visuals like i wanted like i didn't think that way i was just thinking of i thought in terms of like sets and visuals and 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 like scenarios and tableaus I, i didn't think in terms of of a script so it ha- I had to start thinking differently. it took me a while now I love writing now like my new scripts are better and better because I know what I'm doing a little bit there's a specific scene in the love witch that I wanted to talk about um when Elaine is uh taking off her clothes for the first man and the it starts getting really colorful and it looks like a kaleidoscope did you use a lens for that, or was that post-production? It was a filter. It was a filter. Oh. My, my, it, there was this company named Koken, and in the 70s, they made all these filters, um, and they were, like, super psychedelic. And so it was also a Koken, I think it was, no, it wasn't a Koken filter. I think, you know, the, the one with the five images? I think that was, yeah. a, that was actually a lens we used, but the Koken filter made something like that as well, a filter for that, where you, you sort of, like, rotate the lens, and then it, it kind of, so that was really cool but yeah it's a rainbow filter so it creates rainbows wherever there are lights so it created rainbows for the chandelier and for the candles and for any lights that you'd see awesome yeah i I love the way that looked that was really smart to yeah all the effects are in camera all of them yeah wow that's That's cool right yeah Yeah. is that how um bluebeard's gonna be a lot of just strictly camera effects rather than post-production i really prefer it I mean, that's, you know, when you're trying to emulate a period look, that's one of the main things that makes it look period is if you do your effects on camera. Mm-hmm. You don't do CGI. I think that's way overdone, too. And CGI, to me, it doesn't get the same effect. It doesn't have the same depth. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, yeah, like, um, you know, like, Jurassic Park, like, is so impressive the way the dinosaurs look, but they don't have the depth of, like, a Ray Harryhausen movie. You know, you see, like, you know, those, those like, I don't know, claymation sort of monsters and, like, Seventh Voyage of Sinbad and stuff, and they look so 3D. You know, they look so real. Even though their movements are kind of jerky, they're kind of scarier because they're kind of really in the space, you know? Mm-hmm. 
So what's one major goal or dream as a filmmaker that you want to achieve in the future? God, I want to just make my friggin' Bluebeard movie. <laughs> I want to make that, and then I want to make more movies. I just want to keep making, I want to be able to shoot, make movies. That's just my dream. My dream is to keep going, to get financed and to keep going, and to get distributed. That's, that would be amazing, to really be distributed. I mean, so that it's like a real, you know, like people see it, so that more people see it. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's been a great pleasure meeting you all. Sky. Um, happy Halloween. Okay, happy Halloween to you.